Good morning. Pastor Stephen is away this morning, and he asked me if I would be willing to fill in for him. There have been a few times in my life when um, I've been asked to fill in for my wife, and never am I more appreciative of her than um, when I'm doing that. When she comes home, I'm so glad always to see the headlights in the driveway. Um, and I have a new appreciation for Pastor Stephen, having prepared here this morning. Uh, he told me once that uh, a topical study is far more difficult than a study that uh, is an exposition of a passage of scripture. And uh, that um, little bit of uh, information or advice sort of went in one ear and out the other, I guess, because I decided to launch into uh, a study of the topic of worship. It was probably not my best choice, but it's been really good for me, and my effort here this morning is to take what probably should be three months' worth of material and distill it into 40 minutes for you. Um, honestly, I do expect that I'll just scratch the surface, and, uh, and that's okay, because it'll set us thinking, and I expect that it'll also prepare us for what uh, lies ahead as we continue to work through the book of John. Uh, John has so much to say about the topic of worship, and uh, it did occur to me on more than one occasion as I was studying for this morning that this will serve, I think, as a springboard for Pastor Stephen as he um, moves on through that book study. So I want to start off by telling you a story. This is not a made-up story. This is a true story. This happened in 1977. Maria Rubio lived in a small town in New Mexico. And like many in her town, tortillas were a regular part of her diet. <clears throat> One day, she warmed up a tortilla on a skillet for lunch. Then it happened. She recognized the skillet marks bore a striking resemblance to the face of Jesus. She ran next door and shared this miracle with her neighbors and then with her husband after he got home from work, and everyone agreed. There was clearly etched on the tortilla the face of Jesus. So Mr. Rubio had seen that Mrs. Rubio, since this tortilla, was a changed woman. She was happier, she was more peaceful, and she was more submissive. So, Maria put the tortilla in a shadow box frame with piles of cotton to make it appear to be floating on clouds. And then her husband built a special altar for it to rest on. And there was a utility shack in their backyard, so they put the whole assembly in the utility shack in their backyard. Within a couple of months, more than 8,000 people had come to the shrine of Jesus of the Tortilla. I'm not making this up. <laughs> Almost everyone agreed that the likeness on the Tortilla looked like Jesus, except for one reporter who said that he thought that the likeness looked like Leon Spinks. Now, 
Probably most of you don't know who Leon Spinks was. I asked my kids, they didn't know, but he won the gold medal in the 1976 Olympics in heavyweight boxing and defeated, two years later, Muhammad Ali. I'm not exactly sure, but somehow he saw Leon Spinks. Um, so within two years, more than 35,000 people had visited to see the tortilla. With time, the marks faded, but people still came to worship at the shrine. One day, in 2005, Mrs. Rubio decided to let her granddaughter take the tortilla to school for show and tell. Yes, you guessed it. Someone dropped it and it shattered. Mrs. Rubio tried to put it back together, but eventually people lost interest and they had to close the shrine. Intuitively, we sort of know that a tortilla does not really represent true worship, right? I mean, seeing a tortilla might be a curious thing for us, but, but lauding it, worshiping it, is just not right. But you know, Moses, when he left the children of Israel for a period of time, found that the children of Israel did sort of the same thing. As he's up on the mountain, and under the direction of Aaron, the people of Israel brought their gold rings, and Aaron fashioned a golden calf. And the calf was to be in the likeness of the God that brought them out of Israel. That wasn't right. Imagine how Moses felt when he came down from the mountainside and saw this golden calf. The words of God were still ringing in Moses' ear, I'm sure. Here's what Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5 say. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. <coughs> Oops. It occurred to me as I read those words that as God was inscribing them on a rock, at the very time that he was doing that, the children of Israel were bringing their gold rings to Aaron for him to make an image. God knew. So I'm hoping that we can all agree that getting the definition for worship right is really important. For years, I really grappled with this question. What is worship? And my search for an answer was, I think, fueled by some life experiences that I had. There was a debate in a former church that I attended <coughs> regarding the worship service and what it should be like in the sanctuary prior to the onset of the preaching. 
there were many who wanted there to be sort of a worshipful aura. So people were encouraged to be sure not to have their children there in church because they make noise. And the organ played and the lights were low and many were sitting in church with heads bowed and furrowed brows. During those years of our family life, we always sat in the back row, on the right-hand side. I don't know why we do this, but you know how it is? You get kind of used to sitting in a particular place. Well, we came in, we always sort of filed into the back row on the right-hand side, and typically I had at least one child on my lap and one sitting next to me, and I can't tell you how many little ones we had because the number kept changing. <clears throat> we had stopped putting our kids in children's church mainly because every time we would put them in children's church, on Sunday, by Tuesday, at least one of them was sick. And then that would just go through the family. And when you have a large family, that's a real problem. And we would usually go to church on one Sunday and then skip two Sundays, and then go to church on one and skip two. And so finally we said, you know what, we're just going to keep them with us. So as I would sit there in church, though, with my kids next to me, in attempting to prepare my heart for what was to come, I found it really hard to focus. I, I have to make a confession. I, I found myself often looking at the lady with the big poofy hair and wondering why she wore that perfume every Sunday. And did she really think that smelled good? <laughs> and how about those pencils in the back of the pew? What is with those little stubby things with no eraser? They can't be that much cheaper than a full-size pencil with an eraser. And why do we call them pews anyway? They're benches, right? But you put a bench in a church and you call it a pew. There were so many things that I just couldn't answer. I didn't worship very well in those moments before the sermon. Back to the definition. One Christian apologist defines worship as the sense and the service of God. The sense and service of God. That is a really succinct definition and a pretty good one. And I wish that I had discovered it a long time before I did because before I came upon that definition and after struggling through many scripture verses, I had come up with this definition. And this is what I'm going to use today as a working definition as we work through this process. True worship occurs when the recognition of who God is compels a person or a group of people to an expression of sacrificial service. I shall repeat for emphasis, and because some of you are actually writing things down, and I like that. True worship occurs when the recognition of who God is compels a person or a group of people to an expression of sacrificial service. So as a consequence 
of the discovery of who God is, there follows an irresistible natural sense of awe. It really stems from the realization, I think, of who we are in comparison to God. Comparatively, we are nothing. Our intellect and our power compared to God's intellect and power, comparatively, is nothing. So we develop a sense of awe of God as we ponder his character. The sense of all should change us. It should motivate the believer to sacrificial service. And it's on the topic of sacrificial service that I will spend most of the rest of my time. One thing that I've discovered in my studies of this topic is that scripture often uses the word sacrifice as synonymous with worship. Especially in the Old Testament, we see that principle over and over again. So let's start with a look at worship as illustrated in the Old Testament. Those who believed in the true and living God were expected to demonstrate their belief by sacrifice in accordance with the command of God. The mode of sacrifice varied according to the command. They sacrificed sheep, oxen, vegetables. They gave of their time and their talents and their treasures as God specifically commanded them. With the recognition of who God was, the children of Israel responded with sacrifice. So there are always two parts to worship. And the second part naturally follows the first. There is a recognition or a discovery and then there is a response. I'd like to look at Psalm 95 as one of just hundreds of examples of this sense and then sacrifice or service. Psalm 95 says this, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So the psalmist goes back and forth. Recognition and response. Why are we encouraged to sing to the Lord? He is our rock. Why are we to express our thankfulness? Because he is a great God and the creator. Why should we worship and bow down? Because he's our maker. So let's look back now at our working definition. True worship occurs when the recognition of who God is compels a person or a group of people to an expression of sacrificial service. Can you see that 
playing out in this psalm? Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 8 through 11, is another great Old Testament example of our working definition. Here's how it goes. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given to me. Now, at this point, Moses goes from talking to the Lord to talking to the people. And he says, And you shall set it down before the Lord your God, and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. God gave the children of Israel some very specific directives to guide their response to him as their creator. For example, to span the great gap there was between man's sinfulness and God's holiness, God gave the rituals of animal sacrifice. So much bloodshed. Bulls, goats, lambs, rams, birds, blood poured, blood sprinkled, blood placed on the horns of the altars, blood placed on the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe of the high priest. Hundreds and hundreds of instructions God gives to his worshipers regarding how to do it right. And I'll tell you, there is nothing like a read-through Leviticus to make you thankful that we live in the age of grace. Praise God, then came Jesus. And with Jesus, we have a paradigm shift. We move into the age of grace. And some of what constitutes appropriate expression of sacrificial service has changed then with the advent of Jesus. Jesus, the Word, God incarnate, his life, his death, and his resurrection now become our focal point. In this present New Testament age, worship still requires sacrifice. But the mode of sacrifice has changed as God's commandments have changed. The cross of Jesus put an end for the need for blood sacrifice. Now, our sacrifice is demonstrated in the outworking of our love for God through the pursuit of personal holiness and by acts of love toward our fellow man. I'm going to repeat that. Okay? Now, in this New Testament age, our sacrifice is demonstrated in the outworking of our love for God through the pursuit of personal holiness and by acts of love toward our fellow man. During his short ministry here on earth, Jesus set the stage for a new and a better way with his teachings and his lifestyle. And it drove the religious elite nuts. 
As we will see as we continue to work through the book of John, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of the day were incensed that Jesus, a mere man and the son of a carpenter, would make changes to the traditions of worship that had been passed down through generations. Who did he think he was? Well, he told them, but they wouldn't listen. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am. He was and is the Christ, the only and unique Son of God. In John 4, the woman at the well said, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. What was Jesus' response? I, who am speaking to you, I who, excuse me, I, <laughs> let me find it. He said, in response to her proclamation, I who speak to you am he. He was very clear. He was the Christ. In chapter 10, when the religious leaders then asked him, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus said, I did tell you, but you do not believe. In John 8, 58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. He was referring, of course, to the conversation that Moses had with God when Moses said to God, Who should I say sent me? And God says to him, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And then finally, in John 10.30, Jesus flat out says, I and the Father are one. When I was in college, and I went to a small college in southern Pennsylvania called Elizabethtown College. It's not too far from the Harrisburg-Hershey area. I took a religion course in the second semester of my freshman year. I was 18 years old, and I grew up in church. I sat under some great teaching, but I must confess that my mind was often elsewhere as God's word was being preached. The uh, professor at the school, his name was Dr. Ritterspock, uh, he was a Jewish professor who was, I believe, the head of the religion department in our school. And he was teaching New Testament survey. And he made this statement, Jesus never claimed to be God. And when he said that, you could hear a cricket. Nobody said a word, including me. I wish that I had known then what I know now because I would have shot my hand right up. But I didn't, and I regret that to this day. 
Someone once said the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. I did nothing. I don't know that I was a good man, but I do know that I did nothing. I wish that I had. Paul said to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Someone made a big wooden Bible that was above the pulpit in the church where I grew up. And the verse on that was, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. That's the King James Version. And it was one of the verses that I memorized when I was a kid, sort of by osmosis, because I looked at it every Sunday. Truthfully, Studying, learning the word of God is an act of worship. And we'll see that in a short period of time. So here we are. We're in the age of grace. We have Jesus now who is serving as our high priest. And we have his shed blood on our behalf, which has taken the place of all the bulls and rams and sheep and goats And we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. So what do we sacrifice? Well, our bodies, for one thing. Let's turn to Romans. In fact, let's go to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now, remember that in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul takes the reader from the wrath of God through the redemption of man and to the plan of God for Israel and the church. All of the great themes of redemptive history are there in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And then, in the very beginning of chapter 12, we find these familiar words. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and by testing that you may discern what the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." The mercies of God reflects back to what has been said already. The theme of chapters 1 through 11 is God's merciful work on our behalf. Up to this point in the book, Paul is discussing the benefits granted by God as the result of being a Christian. Now Paul says, there is one logical response to Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And it is sacrificing ourselves on his behalf. The NASB renders it our spiritual service of worship. I like that. So what do you think it means to present your bodies as a living sacrifice? Holy and acceptable to God. I often think of women who go through a pregnancy at this point. 
And we've had a few that have been through this recently. Sacrificing your body through childbearing in response to the leading of God to have children is in my mind an example. To sacrifice your body doesn't mean that you have to be burned at the stake or go to some dangerous mission field to share the gospel. It can also mean just the subjection of your bodies to the wear and tear of the daily grind, being faithful with the lot that God has given you. We are admonished, for example, to provide for our families. What if you are an individual whose job is taking its toll on your body? But you're doing that job faithfully and with a good attitude. You're sacrificing your body for the cause of Christ. We have been given these marvelous bodies for a purpose. And the purpose is to glorify God in our bodies. If we spend inordinate amounts of time making ourselves look pretty and never use this temple of the Holy Spirit in service, our time is wasted. So, you can pump iron, you can eat a great diet, make sure you get plenty of sleep, make yourself look really buff, but if you don't use the body to serve God, God is not glorified. On the other hand, if we use our bodies for the cause of Christ and his kingdom, then we are worshiping God with our bodies. Now, I am a doctor, as most of you know, and I would be remiss at this point if I didn't make a comment about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. I think that we should care for our bodies with the same concern as the children of Israel cared for the temple and the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit lives within us and God has given us our bodies and we need to steward this marvelous bit of machinery in which we live very carefully. So take care of yourselves, do pump iron, and eat a good diet and get plenty of rest. So we've learned then that we worship God when we take care of our bodies and when we use our bodies for the glory of God, but how else do we worship God? To that question, I would like to travel back about six months in time. Now, some of you may have a better memory than I do. I had to look this up, but the last time I spoke to you, it was in January, and my big idea was relationships are priority one, love God and love others. And I discussed two closely related biblical accounts, the account of the Good Samaritan, and then an account that immediately followed it, and that is the story of Martha and Mary. In the first account, God uses... Um, the Good Samaritan, to minister to his fellow man, to show what it is to be a neighbor and what it is to love your neighbor. In the second, God shows what it is 
to place Jesus in an appropriate position in our lives. Jesus is traveling with his companions when he enters a village. In this village is a home, and in the home there are three individuals. We know this from a passage in John chapter 11. And those three individuals are at least three individuals, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, and she's listening to his every word. She is just soaking up his presence. While Martha is distracted, it says, with much serving. Martha is frustrated with Mary, and she goes to Jesus, and she appeals to him because this arrangement is obviously inequitable. And she expects Jesus to rebuke Mary and say, hey, you need to go help your sister. But Jesus surprises her. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which shall not be taken away. In contrast to Mary's act, Martha is totally occupied by serving. There is a contrast here that begs our attention. The differentiation between Martha's service and Mary's devotion to the words of Jesus. For the longest time, I struggled with why Jesus commended Mary over Martha. Both Mary and Martha were serving. They were both giving something. Mary was giving her attention. Martha was giving her service in preparing the meal. But a careful study reveals that there was a heart difference between the two women. Mary was focused on the Lord Jesus, the importance of his words. Mary had her priorities right. Martha, on the other hand, was distracted by preparations. She had taken her focus off of Jesus and was just focused on the tasks at hand. And it's interesting to me that the story of Mary and Martha follows the parable of the Good Samaritan because the Samaritan is an example of what it means in a practical sense to love your neighbor. Sequentially placed in scripture, we have two examples of worship that look very different. In the first example, the Samaritan is actively serving by taking care of someone. In the second example, Mary is directly showing her adoration for Jesus by focusing on his word to the exclusion of all else. Mary provides another example of total devotion to Jesus in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This again takes place in the home of Mary and Martha. And this is after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Let's read that passage. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. 
Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary uses that which in this culture was her glory, her hair, to wash the feet of Jesus. And she doesn't use soap and water. She uses an expensive oil, nard. I don't know what nard is, but apparently it was really expensive and really valuable. And she uses that to wash his feet. Clearly, Mary believed that her devotion to the Son of God was more important than her savings or her personal glory. So, let's wrap this up. In these four examples of authentic worship in the age of grace, Paul's admonition to present our bodies as a sacrifice, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of Mary and Martha, or the story of Mary and Martha, and the story of Mary, they give us, those stories give us four ways to authentically worship God in this New Testament age, what we call the age of grace. We worship God in spirit and in truth when we sacrifice our bodies, when we love our neighbors, and when we devote ourselves to the word of the Lord, and when we sacrifice what we have to give honor to God. God knows our hearts. God wants our hearts above all else. Well, I have barely scratched the surface on the topic. I will defer a conversation of John chapter 4 to Pastor Stephen on his return. We will see many references to worship as we continue to move through the book of John. Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in chapter 4 hits the issue of worship head on. So it was my desire to give you a slightly different slant on worship than perhaps you had considered in the past. And it was not my intention to discredit in any way the worship that we traditionally provide as we sit here and we sing and we contemplate the greatness of God. And I do want to say how much I appreciate Josiah and the team this morning leading us. And I didn't pick out these songs, but they seem to me to be amazingly congruent with the message that I had to share today. Um, so let us now sing with all our heart and continue to regularly attend these worship services. But we need to remember that to be an authentic worshiper, we need to continue to worship even after we walk out the back door of the church.